people will call me and ask me for advice on their deal. And it's critical to identify that ahead of time and say, reminder, I'm going to give you advice on your deal. It's your deal until you figure out, oh, I don't have the extra zero associated with that. Like, oh, the bank won't give me a 3% down loan for this purchase when there's no bathrooms or no kitchen. Like people will end up inviting us in or partnering up with us or wholesaling us something because we'll give the advice just like, hey, here's why it doesn't fit your buy box. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I'm your host, Jake Harris. Uh, today, I have a fantastic guest. Uh, I know I save that every time because every guest that I have on the show is fantastic. At least they are to me because they came on my podcast and I get to interview them. But this is one of my friends, Tommy Christie. He is uh, awesome, an awesome individual. Uh, we dive into some distressed investing, some foreclosure stories, and also how to be opportunistic and pivot into the world Now that there's maybe less foreclosures and maybe we're into a recession and there's opportunities to buy some assets here in the near future, in the coming maybe late or mid to late 2023, but also how you can prepare yourself for that. Also understanding that this is Passive Wealth Principles, understanding that there are a lot of active activities that you can participate in in the real estate world and that maybe you don't want to do that and there's some alternatives how institutional investors really changed the game. And Tommy bought something like three or 4,000 homes in the Sacramento market in the early 2010s. So we dive into all those things. Wait until you hear some of his stories and especially what he's doing right now. That comes in towards the end of the show. It is a fantastic episode and welcome to Passive Wealth Principles and Tommy Christie. Tommy Christie, welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I'm super excited. Uh, we've known each other for 10 years, Ish. 12 years, something like that. It's been it's been a minute. Um, we've actually got a chance to, to to hang out a few times. We we drove down to Santa Cruz together. Uh, we learned about some marketing stuff, but we get to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart: foreclosures, distressed investing. Uh, you know, that's where we initially learn or, you know, 
got connected with we, each other is that we were all both doing foreclosure properties and, and flipping houses. And, and then you got part of a big organization and kind of put us all out of business. But let's, let's actually take a second. And I'd love for you to dive in and give kind of uh, the audience your backstory. Like, you know, uh, you weren't born a real estate investor. Maybe you were, maybe you were born a real estate investor in a foreclosure auction or something like that. But Tell us, tell us, tell me, I'm interested to, to know your backstory, uh, your history, take a few minutes to expand it. And then from there, we'll dive into a few. Well, I appreciate the invite here, rather. I thank you. And uh, sidebar, I do want to almost go back to that deal. You and I walked in Santa Cruz when we were just burning off our $500 dinner was walking downtown to that, that late ocean front. When you walked me through a $450,000 per key hotel and what that looks like. Like I, I loved learning that to that angle, to that stuff. Hospitality is not an industry I have any experience in. So that was a fun deal to kind of work on, but all right. So on to me, I, uh, for right now, I still am classifying myself as a fund manager and a distressed real estate fund manager. I would go back in time 18 months, if not two years or even more, and say I was in the foreclosure market. And I would say that the foreclosures are now politically incorrect to be part of in any given random way as the foreclosure volume has crashed. So has my identity in being a foreclosure professional. So our fund and uh, the fund mentality of being part of the distressed real estate market keeps it as vague as I decide from residential to commercial to trailer parks or condos or dirt or, you know, uh, ground up development. Right now, we are looking at transactions that surface through a level of distress of any kind. And background wise, I guess my most known for being the, the invitation homes guy in Northern California, where I did jump aboard and build a company where I want to say we had maybe 75 ish or so heads or 70 to 80 heads uh, managing 3000 or so houses of which sometimes we were buying 30 plus houses a day in the foreclosure world, stabilize, you know, re uh, buy fix, Stabilize refi in that model that I think is now at 80,000 nationally and a 15 plus billion dollar valuation. And I got to be part of that thing from ground one with big stack of cashier's checks. So that was the fun part of it. But for the most part, I built my own personal portfolio on the one off buy, fix, and sell, buy, fix, and hold residential real estate. So I'd love to get like, you know, Invitation Home came into the market. You know, they didn't just randomly pick people. You had some levels of experience. So t- take me back to like, you know, when did you first start investing into real estate? When did you, and how did you discover, you know, kind of distressed investing? So this is my 20th year. I would say that at year three, I felt invincible 2004 or five, like in the world of real estate. And there was a lot I wanted to learn. And my mentor at the time who was my boss did not want to teach it to me because ultimately you're training your future competition from his angle. He was an old school foreclosure guy. 
And uh, so I did start my own gig into 05, kind of failed forward until the market started giving gifts of assets that were 10 cents on the dollar. You know, things that had a $300,000 loan on them were going to sale for 30 grand. So that was how I, I found a lender that didn't matter what we bought it for. I could borrow basically 50K against the door. Uh, my partner, Steve, and I at the time just stabilized doors. So that was the biggest advancement in my, my career was looking at the future equities as more valuable than the temporary flips or wholesale value of the volume we did. So we started wholesaling stuff because when 40 to 50 houses a day, we go to foreclosure sale, we could only afford to buy two, three, four, depending on how much money we had. So we would pay, we would be paid a fee to acquire deals for other investors and other funds. Some of them were very active in knowing what they bought and others would be like, what did I get today? And I would give them a balance of their cashier's checks back and, and a receipt showing they'll get their deed in two weeks. So fast forward to 08 when Invitation Homes comes in and 10, that was, you know, they basically Waypoint opened the door. And out of fear alone of what Waypoint was borrowing and buying, and I thought, I got to get out of the way. They're going to dominate. The, not knowing and understanding their buy box, which is critical. This buy box is really the key to understanding your own business and someone else's or finding investors that ha have a very well-defined buy box, there's all kinds of transactions that you could be a part of by understanding that side of it. And I, at the time, I would have felt like it was the biggest box in the world. So I jumped aboard with Invitation Homes to have as much financing behind me as possible, not fully understanding what we were doing, except for buy and hold. There wasn't metrics of occupancy and a budget there was just gross you know returns and what what are we going to get our what's our ROI on this thing potentially looking like so they recruited a you know a few of us all of us wanted to do it our own way um i mean the kind of people they needed needed to hit the ground running with employees and be able to lead and run and i would say it was bigger and better than i ever had anticipated but at the same time it was also it's a completely different mindset to be part, you know, of one of the biggest deals in residential real estate with the smallest interest versus owning 100% of the smallest deal going on in real in real estate. So it was easy to partner up. Uh, Daniel Claiborne and I tag teamed on that one. Actually, it was a referral through Title, our Title company at the time, and our Title reps had referred us and said, "If you're going to work with anybody that's going to do volume, here you're, here are the people that are on your radar." So we came through on that radar and we did a ton of deals and it was a really, we actually had a counter at one point in time, you know, like a next in line counter where we would go click, click. And you could see when the hammers drop, like we would do it and the people in the back would be like, hey, like so exciting, they bought a house. Like, but, which to a point meant we're going to probably stay there till 1230 doing paperwork that night. And then we have to be back at auction by 430 the next morning to get money out to the Bay Area. So that was a cool time in the world. But. And then, and then I exited that before the IPO'd and waited around till that figured itself out financially. And then since then, it's just go back to self-employed, small team, boutique fund management to try and figure out what's going on in this market. How do we make money doing it? And there's, there's a lot of awesome things and lessons that I'm sure you learned on the fly. You know, so when I went to school, I actually went to you know, grad school and, and, and basically it was like learning a new language. So private equity, institutional capital is like a whole nother ball game. 
like, you know, like what you and I, you know, were doing before fixing up, flipping some houses, being the contractor, doing those other things. But to, to, to your point, I think, you know, you, you hit on a few other ideas that I think I'd love for you to kind of dive into some more detail on, uh, specifically around like the buy box, you know, and the definition of that, um, because maybe as an opportunistic investor is your buy box is like, I buy whatever makes sense, you know, versus like my agent tells me to buy or like, there's a lot to that. I actually feel like I, I, we, we could do to make it relative to the, any investor watching your show right now. It's like the buy box is a toolbox of value that you can provide for your, your other people. If it doesn't fit inside of your own buy box, there is so much value in being part of a bigger deal that someone else is running that you don't have the capital for, you don't have the time for, or you're just doing your one piece of that you'll find that just understanding the distressed real estate market, the foreclosure market, the lead market, people are advertising what comes through. If it doesn't fit in your buy box, some of those just leads go to bed. You know, like being a value, like, hey, by the way, I reasonably dominate the San Antonio commercial downtown market. If you get anything, if you're telling enough people that, like, please bring me these leads that I would like to be a value to, to what you're doing you'll find that more people that understand your buy box will bring you deals. And there's some really interesting stuff that goes down when like people will call me and ask me for advice on their deal. And it's critical to identify that ahead of time and say, reminder, I'm going to give you advice on your deal. It's your deal until you figure out, Oh, I don't have the extra zero associated with that. Like, Oh, the bank won't give me a 3% down loan for this purchase when there's no bathrooms or no kitchen, like people will end up inviting us in or partnering up with us or wholesaling us something. Cause we'll give the advice just like, Hey, here's where you're at. Here's your pitfalls. And here's what's going on. Here's why it doesn't fit your buy box. Like, or here's why it's so perfect. It's two streets over and you love driving by your rentals and you're only going to do stuff within a 10 mile radius of your house or a, one county area where you prefer to invest or if you know you could be doing deals in cleveland from california if you know you believe that the intel campus there is going to expand and you want to do multifamily that's reasonably close to an area like and you have a full-time job you're a doctor you're a engineer you're whatever you do for a living and you're doing your investments on the side that's identifying what your buy box is. So you're not going to take on a 12 unit ground up development with horizontal infrastructure needs in Eureka, California. You don't, you don't have a team for that. Like you're not equipped for that. That's not in your buy box. It might be in someone's and it may take too much of your effort to try and find someone who wants that. But if a 1995 built conforming fourplex comes through that's 100% occupied and you're already pre-qualified with your preferred lender, you take it down and you put it in your long-term cash flow belt. You know, you get your horizontal income measurement and this plays into that. And that's why it fits in my buy box because I'm going to hire a property manager. It's not going to bleed me of any time until the rehabilitation expenses exceed $500 that my, you know, if your agent says, if you're property manager has 
uh, permissions to re- you know to fix any issue under five hundred dollars, you're just collecting checks, and that's part of your buy box. Or if you're like, hey, I actively need this money back in the next ninety days because I have to turn this money four times a year in order to get the returns on my investment that I need with my overhead, and you buy something that is fully rehabbed by someone else at $120,000 a unit that's only worth $120,000 a unit. Like there's no angle that doesn't fit in your active money buy box. So there's so many ways you can kind of define that, but I feel like it's a great activity for an investor to really walk through what they if it's their first deal, what kind of deal they're hoping to do, if it's their 10th deal, which of their last eight would they do again and why? And it helps you define like why you're never going to buy in that neighborhood again. Like, or holy moly, like the rents are way higher than we had anticipated in these neighborhoods. Like, I think we should put our focus into buying in that neighborhood or you could do into syndications because you don't have any interest in You'd like the upside and you want your capital back in a, in a reasonable period of time, but you're not going to deal with the contractors and run the job. You're not going to, you know, you could be the LP or the GP. It's, you got to understand who you are to the transaction and match it. And, and, and there's a big hump there that people can't get over to do their first deal. So if they can better understand that they don't have to tell a story about how they hit a home run on their first duplex they bought the first fourplex or the first single family that they bird i love that part of identifying hey my model is burr i want my money back in six months willing to if it takes a year it takes a year because 10 years from now i can have 10 assets on the same burr dollar and you get your money back yeah and that's i think so important is the specificity of the deal you're looking for, the more specific you can get, the more opportunity and the more that those deals get brought to you. So like, like you said, and obviously Invitation Homes had a buy box of they were basing, you know, and you maybe have better understanding of it, but it was like, basically it was like they wanted to be all in at 75% of previous peak price of an asset value, you know, and so if it was 500,000, they wanted to be all in at, you know, maybe a 70%, you know, so 350,000. And so they were not making it correlated to what today's prices were. They were basing it on a matrix. So our buy box is previous peak price, average asset value. And so to me, when like they came in and they were buying stuff for like more than a house was worth at auction, they're buying paying $225,000 for a house that was only worth $225,000 today. And they still had to fix it up and they still had to, you know, put a kitchen and a bathroom and, you know, paint it and carpet and everything else. And it was like, this makes no sense to me. And, but part of it was they had a very specific investment thesis that they were operating under that they didn't care what today's prices were. They were looking at five years or 10 years or their IPOs kind of value. And so it allowed them to execute their business plan much more efficiently. And so Tommy, you were at the courthouse steps doing this and you're buying assets for more than they were worth. And I was like, what the hell is going on? That, that confused people. You know, I, it's funny. There's, there's two parts that I would want to cover. Number one would be, I remember my first day at auction and one of the first few assets we bought was this vacant asset in Rio Linda. And I, when we got to like our seventh deal that day, my buddies are calling me like, dude, some fund came in here and bought seven houses today. I'm like, 
those bastards. Like, why would they do that? You know, like, and then, so my, in the back, I'm thinking, oh man, like, wait till they figure this out to me. And then one of the criers said that was my mailing address. And in a heartbeat, my phone just starts flowing and blowing up. But our, our, um, the thesis, as you mentioned, was pretty simple. Buying an asset below its replacement cost. And you and I could do a whole show on just that today because the cost of materials have gone up. Have they been, are they inflated and they're never coming back down? I mean, are the labor expenses associated with it? Are the fact that it's almost impossible to get a permit for less than the cost of what you used to be able to buy dirt for before? Like that stuff, when the world's falling apart, you don't, you're not on board. You're like, I don't see it. Why do you think this thing's going to be worth 350 when I can buy it for 110 today? Like, if I had believed it, I just would have bought more for myself and just sat on them at that time. But I jumped on board with them thinking I would have a tiny slice of every single little itty bitty asset, you know, we had out there. So you're buying assets below the replacement cost and you're buying assets below their previous peaks and the very, very specific cycles associated with California's real estate say it is now worth less than it should be. It's guaranteed it's going to be worth more than that. And what bugs me about it is, is when I left in 14, 15, I was invited to join other rental funds. And I felt like, oh, Steam's out of the market. They already doubled like in price, which was true. But most of those markets and most of those that we were in, they had you know some really big national markets, had another 50 to 100% to run. And when you got a big data team, maybe it's a lot more confident or you got that much capital, but I wasn't, I had no fear of loss in going back to buy, fix and sell and just making my money and buying and holding assets and redeveloping stuff. But that market just keeps running. There's still a ton of, you know, a ton of people who need a rental and an outdated credit system that doesn't support purchasing even though you've never were you know laid on rent over x period of time like there's a lot of metrics there that eventually may get assets in the hands of tenants but it creates the same problem which is just a circle of the inability for us to create new rentals for an affordable amount so i really like that industry it's not something i have a big play in other than just stabilizing the assets i have now but i never had dealt with treasury management like, what? how do you account for $8 million in cashier's checks in a day and figure out which receipt they associated with and how much refunds are coming back? And like, then we put it on a spreadsheet that is ginormous and provide data to all the team up and at the top. And they just made more decisions off that, just went running with it. And it was a, it was a really cool time in the market. It's fun. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look. Two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. 
We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. You know, I continued on with that and we went and started doing it in other markets. We went to Texas and Georgia and, you know, other areas and other states. And at least what I had seen was that there was still opportunity in these other markets. California, you know, invitation, Tommy, you spiked the market and you took it from, you know, 50% and you took it up to 75%, you know, like in a, in a heartbeat. But like there's some of these other markets, it was still 50%. The funds hadn't tapped into them. And so it was like, wow, that's super great. Like it is a trend. And you, you bring it back to the buy box where we started with this. Like there are people I know and funds that I know are acquiring in markets that we're not in. Like it, for people that are dominating in Charlotte right now, like there's a very specific buy box for these institutional investors. If you understand their buy box, you could advertise in ways that are off-market MLS and bring transactions that simply put match their model. These are models that are usually based off of having, you know, the operators more of the administrative, like they're incentivized to, to put out and tell them, they got to tell Wall Street, hey, we bought another 500 houses this quarter. We bought another 500 houses this year. They're, the progress and what they tell their investors is the capital comes in, gets allocated to a transaction that matches this yield and the following metrics that we can meet. We'll buy as many more as we can. If They'll buy entire companies if the, if, it, if the portfolio matches what they can do with it on the capital market side. If they can borrow 100 million bucks against that stack of houses, and this is part of it, these funds are incentivized to do deals. They're not incentivized to buy something for 400 that you just bought for 300 when someone's going to write an article about it like, oh, look at all the waste. And that was a fear in the market. When we were buying stuff, someone would buy something for 110 from a homeowner, put it on MLS for 200. If we paid 200, even though we bought it through an agent on MLS, it would look like we just paid a $90,000 premium on something. So we would have to pass on stuff just because the optics didn't match. But in reality, it fit perfect in our buy box. It was like, which was yield. If you get a thousand dollars a month in income on this for 12 straight months and you want a 10%, you know, yield, you're just dividing, you know, the rents and your purchase price and coming up with what your ROI is going to be on that. That's as simple as it got from some of the filtering when you're looking at that many leads. Nowadays, it's not the same, but it's close. Well, that's the other big thing is, is that I think, you know, now, it, you know, Invitation Homes is on the other side of an IPO. Some of these other funds. Great point. American Homes for Rent, Colony, Tricon, you know, whoever, you know, have all created their different mechanisms and their kind of niche and, and the way that they, you know, baked it out. And some of them have switched teams, you know. So now Blackstone was behind Invitation. Now they're behind, you know, Tricon. They're behind some of these other groups. Uh, again, the money moves, they they exited and then they were like, well, let's dive back into this market and continue to pour, pour on some capital. But when you're talking institutional private equity, like they're trading off of stock prices. And so that dollar amount of that revenue is at an EBITDA or a, a price uh, earnings ratio 
that is so much greater than their ability to leverage because they're leveraging things 50 times that you and I just don't have access to on it as an individual, their cost of capital is nothing. Like they're paying two, 3%. They're paying, well, maybe not now with interest rates, but their cost of capital is cheaper. Their transaction costs are cheaper. Their construction prices are cheaper. Everything about what they do is more efficient and better. And so that's why understanding what other people's buy box is also helps you to not go get run over by this train that's coming down. You're like, woo, hey, maybe I should start doing in commercial or industrial or something else because I don't have a billion dollars at 0% interest. So that's why, and and, and I, I the reason I, I brought that up is like the market sh- shifted. Things have changed. There's not a whole lot of foreclosures. The last couple of years have been you know, very different. So what are you doing today? Like, how have you pivoted? And obviously you're not a, you're, you're a fund manager now, but you're not billion dollar fund manager. How, and what have you are seeing that's successful in today's market? You know what I love about that? It's so individually relative. Like if our, you know, fund here, if we're shooting for 5 million bucks and we're oversubscribed, or we already have an interest in our second fund because we believe that the first, you know, fund is going to be subscribed. When you go and you're in a group of people that are doing transactions at other fund managers, or they're in this foreclosure space or the, the distressed space, and we're all kind of saying those same things. I, you know, I was introduced to a guy that said, Hey, can you do that times 10? So my $5 million doesn't even move the needle for the Jeffries of the world who do 50 million minimum. They're like, we can bring in the parties to prove it out on paper for you. If you have the source, can you place the capital fast enough? Or can you prove out your model or your thesis into this thing with your buy box? And for us, our bandwidth becomes we have this amazing team here, you know, for data and property management and um, just the experience under this roof for how we can do the foreclosure process or how we can buy in multiple states or we can buy notes. We are just light footed operators. Like we have the ability to just sprint with something to run with something or like we dropped everything for an auction out of state today. And uh, I want to say postponed, but with a banking holiday yesterday, people that aren't prepared for this stuff, they're not even in, they're not even competitive with it. So we find a lot of success with one-offs. And what we're finding is, is the real value of all, our model is that nugget that comes through, like pay the bills with the standard buy, fix, and sell, stabilize the assets as best you can. And uh, every so often you get, like we bought our trailer park at auction. We weren't in the market for trailer park, but it came through a foreclosure sale. We're like, I'll take it. And then you hear the stories behind it and you're like, now I know why they're in foreclosure. And um, assets in, you know, truck, the Truckee Tahoe that you're never like, you're not, people aren't bragging about the amazing discounts they're getting in A plus markets like that. Like that's not happening. But when you're there and you're present and you're part of, of the hunt for transactions in that market, that's the kind of stuff that really motivates us now. And we have a half a dozen probates. We have, um partial interests where we'll buy a one-third ownership because a, a 
uh, someone passed away and equal and deeded equal interests to people and the other two people don't want to sell or two people do want to sell and one person doesn't. So the our ability in the distressed world to operate there and, and just find our our returns kind of is based off of just how many people know exactly what we're doing and how are we act can we accurately close as fast as we say we can? Are we nimble? Yeah, being flexible is is so critical. And obviously I remember there was a time I was down in Texas and same thing. It was like that there was a, a holiday the day before auction. It might have been New Year's. It, it might have been like, you know, in the the first Tuesday. And so they do all of the auctions for the entire month on the first Tuesday of the month. And so every county, and so in in what maybe in, in what's different is California, you know, there used to be transactions every day, multiple times a day. And, you know, and, and different counties had them in different locations. Sacramento had at the courthouse, but you'd have multiple like, hey, it was a 930 auction. It was a 11 o'clock auction. It was a 130 auction, you know, at the courthouse. Well, like Placer County had it in multiple locations. It would be up at DeWitt. It'd be over at the Justice Center. It'd be at, you know, Vernon Street. And so then sometimes like you'd have two auctions going on at the same time. And then you'd have to look and be like, which one do we go to? Yeah. You know, and then it was like, so if you didn't go to the right one and that one postponed and the other one went like in who just showed up that day and who had cash. And so again, being opportunistic, this, this industry breeds that type of investor that is like very uh, nimble. But in Texas, it was like that where it was all in one location. But if like you miss that day or you don't have cashier's checks or doing whatever, you miss the entire month, you know? And so there was a time that we went to auction and we got cashier's checks because we flew into the market. So everybody was used to picking them up at auction the day before, but there was a holiday. We showed up to auction and like nobody was there with money. We were the only ones there with money. And so then it was like, oh, it was like, you know, shooting fish in a barrel or picking apples out of a, a bucket or whatever the analogy you want to use. And hammer drops at 9 a.m. and the bank doesn't open till Exactly. 9. And then there's a line out the door and it's, you got Susie bank teller that is like, looks at you like you have three, three heads when you go in and ask for half a million dollars in cashier's checks. And she's like, and you need 17 checks to break them up into small amounts and make them out to yourself. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh, the logistics of that is, is very challenging. So I'd love to dive into is also some interesting stories. I get asked this a lot, buying foreclosures you hear lots of very interesting stories or have very interesting, you know, deals that get put out there. So uh, we didn't prep for this, but like if there's any kind of like deals that or stick out in your mind as crazy, interesting, you know, amazing return, big gloss, you know, I'd love to hear it. You know, we bought one where there was a guy getting sued by his tenants and it went to foreclosure sale and one of the tenants called us after we bought it bought it at the foreclosure sale and said hey i own this property and his mailback was in jail <laughs> like so when the guy went to jail he sold it to his cellmate but didn't record a deed because they can't just leave and go record a deed and so that guy sent us letters like hey um i own this property like here's proof you know i bought it and I'm like oh do you like that's that's exceeding our deed or whatever like uh, people are 
it's just funny how the distress bleeds its way through to exactly where we are at the auction or like the kind of stories you hear from occupants or owners or previous owners and tenants stuff that comes through is crazy but i guess your question really was more along the lines of like where are we finding that in the distress world and how it's relative to your to your listeners is that where you're going with it it could be just and i'll give you an example there was one we bought a house at auction that was vacant and so oftentimes you go change the locks as, as soon as possible because who knows, maybe a squatter comes in and moves in and now you have a civil matter of trying to get possession of this house. And so it was in Rockland and I was walking the house and I don't know if you get this, but sometimes you get these little, the spidey senses on the back of your neck, like the house was vacant. There wasn't power on. It was one of those things, but it like you're, you started walking through and it felt like somebody was there. Yeah. And I was just like, so and I'm always a little bit tripped out and weirded out when, you know, you're, you're breaking into a house that you now own that you have no idea what's behind the next door. And so you're like kind of walking through and it just felt like somebody was there. And I kept like, hello, hello, like, hey, we bought the house, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like, as I'm walking through and I'm looking through and I'm in the master bedroom upstairs and it kind of looks like someone's like been sleeping in the corner and stuff, but it was like, it was kind of weird. And I was like, man, but it was like, there's nobody here. And I walk into the, into the master closet. It's one of those big walk-in kind of closets. And I'm looking around and looking in it. And there's a, a clothes hamper in the quarter that I kind of walked past. And as I walked past it, this person, this girl jumps up out of it, young-ish, you know, skinny kind of girl. And I think she was probably a drug addict. You know, I'm making wild you know, assumptions, but she jumps up out of the clothes hamper and goes, I'm getting my stuff and leaving. And I about crapped my pants. Like I about like, I was in the army. I was in the infantry. I did like, my dad was a police officer, all these things. And all I could mutter was like, like grab my chest as like, I stutter backwards, like into the closet and she jumps off and runs down out of the house. And I'll tell you for probably like half a day, I was still like, like, like almost shook. And it was like, dude. And it was like that. Like, I mean, there's so many crazy stories related to like going through those things. And I was like, holy crap. Yep. Someone sleeping in this vacant house. It freaked me out. Did think I don't have no idea. Never saw her again ever in my life. But to me, like heart attack. It takes years, it takes years off your life. It's like, you know, we, you can smell it sometimes you walk in, you're like, Oh, there's a homeless person here right now. Like, and you look around, you can't find it. They're up in the attic. People know when they're about to lose their free ride. You know, like, uh, it's sad that a lot, most of it, you'll, we, you know, you do an unlawful detainer and the sheriff shows up and they know the people because they've been in other houses or they were in the corrections facility or they were in the youth facility. Now they're in the adult facility. It's like this. We've had some really uncomfortable ones. And I mean, we had one that it's, we had one this week or a lot this month, last month that was like, the cops didn't feel comfortable because they couldn't see the guy's hands. Like, and you never know who you're dealing with. So we had to be patient and we gave them as much room as they needed. And within they, they were able to resolve it without any issue at all. Like, but 
they didn't want, it wasn't one of those like kick the door down. This is my house type things. It was just like, Hey, smart police work's going to lead us to handle it this way. Can you just trust us with that? And meanwhile, we're like, you have no idea how long it's been since dude's paid. Like we're waiting days when it's been years type thing of like, since somebody paid and they usually peacefully work themselves out. People just need to pay, you know, you, you pay for storage for people, you know, the referrals. We've had people sell us interests in other properties to stop unlawful detainers or evictions. Like you, they didn't know what to do with it. They only owned a third of it, a half of it. Like uh, I think I own like 8% of a piece of land on highway 205 at Tracy. <laughs> the guy's like, I can sell you this. They're like, okay, you know, like, sure. I'll figure it out as each party kind of deeds off of it over the years. You know, it was like, there was a will and there was like 10 people in it. Like, uh, you know, uh, just out of the scary moment of lie that you had, you know, you, you start asking people what else is vacant around here? Like you could, you can get busy on deal machine, just find a vacant houses and send them postcards. Like there is a ton. Now in some markets, I will tell you some markets, a house has lived its natural life. It's not worth the asbestos worry, the, the lead based paint claim you're going to have to file to demo it. Like that is, that's not California ish, but it is, there are places where like someone calls you up and offers you a house for 6,000 bucks. You can't afford to buy it. Like it's just not worth it. I mean, I put a, $8,600 AC in a house that I bought for $6,800. Like if someone steals my AC, they basically stole my house. Like, yeah, like, oh, that's worthless. Like this guy, last week we have a, we had a guy fall through the ceiling. Like he was being chased. He kicked in the back door. There's family watching TV. He ran, he's like, he starts kicking a hole in the wall, works his way through the garage conversion up in the attic, trying to hide from the police. And then he followed right through the ceiling. Like who's going to pay that bill? Yeah, that, that I mean, it's that's one of the other things I think for new investors is the and that's why I try to bring up some of these losing money, horror stories, bad things, because it, it is not all uh, flip this house or, you know, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines like, oh, it's great. I just made a gazillion dollars. You'd be like, dude, there's a lot of things that really, really are not fun and suck about this business. But in, in this market, the people that are going to really do well, if you're like a husband and wife team and the husband's fixing it, like you're talking to Chip, Chip and Joanna Gaines type thing, and you're, jet, you're able to be your own agent to acquire something, get paid a commission to do so, something, you know, in, in most cases, sometimes sellers negotiate that out. They're like, oh, you're the buyer, right? Get paid, you know, save a commission on the dispo. You get this cushion of yield. And some people that haven't done enough transactions don't understand that the difference of how a deal is presented is sometimes in gross and net. Oh, it's a 15% return on, on your investment. You know, or you get a wholesaler that says, this thing has 50 grand in equity. It's worth, you know, 150. You can buy it for 100. Oh, okay. So if I sold it for 150, will I get a check for 50 grand? Like, no, it's gross versus net as these things are presented, right? And, and uh, but this market, you can get away with doing... If you're doing the work on your own, you're a contractor, like there's a huge niche to partner up with contractors to be able to do deals. There's a huge, there's an opportunity for people who have the deal that don't want a wholesale fee that want to stay on and be part of the deal. Like either way, you're going to pay for it type thing. Like there's a, I pay a $30,000 fee up front or they get a percentage ownership on the transaction. Like you can be as, as nimble as you need to into these transactions. And that's, I think one of the things that makes it easier for us is, when people call us, they're not worried about us going behind them to do the deal. We're like, you don't understand how many 
the volume of leads we have to look at and what it would take for us to go find these owners in, in Texas for the vacant house you're selling me in Sacramento. Like people come to us, we can value it for them when they're making their offer. And you know they know I can't be in this thing over 300, including closing costs. So if they made an offer that includes the buyer pays all closing costs, that means we're going to be at 295 which means that they have to mark it down even 15,000 bucks if they're trying to get an assignment fee. So my takedown in contract is 280 plus all the closing costs plus a $15,000 fee to the guy gets me in the deal 300,000 bucks. And if you're not doing your own deals and someone offers you that for a wholesale fee, you're like, you don't like the wholesale fee, go do your own deals. So if someone brings it to you and they're asking for this fee, you can't look at it like they're marking it up. It doesn't matter. It's like people that look at what we paid for the house. Like, you only paid 300 for this thing. I'm not going to pay you 450. Like, oh, well, we carried it for four months and we put $70,000 into it. Like in their mind, they're thinking we got this steal of a deal four months ago that they feel like their offer could be reasonably based on that. Well, and it's like one of the big things is, you know, the, the topic or the, the, you know, title of the show is passive wealth principles is if you're a real estate investor and, and here's, here's the big thing is it's not passive unless you're investing alongside or becoming part of like a fund where it is someone like you or me or others that are actively doing the deals that you now get the benefit of that hard work. So I don't know the actual specific numbers, but did you have you made more money flipping houses or did you make more money being part of a fund that flipped a bunch of houses being invitation homes? And so uh, that, that would be kind of my question is like you as a passive investor, I bet you've made equal, maybe more or a significant amount of thing on very little effort of being part of bigger portfolios that you didn't have a part of. Yeah. You know, our, our butter, our buddy, Daniel, uh, who uses personalcapital.com, like he basically tracks any and everything going in and out, say accounts or assets that, you know, that program will take it to the level, whatever you want. If you give it more data, it can get you more analysis of that data to the point where, you know, on my, on 30 of my houses, my net worth is going to go up 150 grand this year because I paid them down with amortization. So people think, you can think for a second, well, it was worth 330 at the beginning of the year. It's probably worth 340 now. But most people aren't calculating that that 175 loan you have is now paid down to 169, 165, or wherever it is. Like that is that chip away of wealth. I mean, I had prior to levering up to do, you know, some bigger deals and other transactions, a lot of the stuff we owned, we just had our original purchase money loans on it, 30, 40, 50,000 bucks. I mean, I have a loan right now with Umqua that has like a $17,000 payoff at 4.875. Am I going to pay that off? I am in no hurry to pay that thing off because it's not like I'm sitting on an extra 18K and I just want that 4.75% you know, cost saving. I got 30 year debt on that thing. For now, I'm not relying on the income. The income kind of is part of the model or it's going to pay down the loans. However, you justify the income. And in the world of trying to cap rate a single family, you can't do that. Like it's, I mean, the world getting a 30 year mortgage is based off the fact that things are going to break. Maintenance is going to be necessary. Roofs are going to need to be redone. So if you're not doing it now and you're getting 500 bucks a month, you're not setting that aside into your, you know, rehabilitation reserves or maintenance reserves. You're not really relying or relying or living off that cap of that, um, 
that cash flow. So I, I built far more value into my portfolio just holding stuff and telling my stories to myself about why I shouldn't have sold something that was amazing or assets that I never would have seen three, four, five Xing in value. We just bought them because they were great cash flow assets and significantly below the replacement cost. And now the market is still, I mean, the California's market is just not able to deliver $250,000 new builds. So you can buy a turd sandwich in a neighborhood you wouldn't park your car in overnight. And it's really well built or reasonably well maintained. You probably got a great long-term asset. If you got a 110 year old house in a historic neighborhood that you need to get a permit to get a permit to get a permit because it's got corbels that were made by some, you know, specific designer to the region. Like you're going to die rehabbing that thing. You're going to get, you're going to live a year of rehab and permit trying to do a re, you know, people don't look at the difference between a remodel, a restoration or a rehab like rehab remodel. Yeah. I'm adding a fourth bedroom and a bathroom. That's going to take six months. I'm buying it, fixing it, rehabbing it, and it'll be on the market in 30 days. That's a rehab. These restorations are like, it could be 18 months, triple your budget and you know, triple the, you know, the amount of time it's going to take to get this thing done, to get historical preservation society permission to do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, know your product. Yeah, that's. I think that's the other thing. Playing in the right lane, you know. Hey, rehab. I think understanding and bringing it back even to like, like you said, the buy box. Hey, I need to turn my capital four times in a given year. So that means you need to be in and out of an asset in ninety days. So how long is it going to take to? You have to ignore vacants that occupies. You can't do a deal on an occupied unless you feel, with all confidence, you've built in an irrational cash for keys and they're going to accept it. Because you go 75 days on an eviction, 90 days on an eviction, on a 90-day deal, you're... Or a year, year and a half, two years you're on an ROI, eviction. ROI. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we've had them. We've had them go the distance. Great point. COVID was a different beast, though. And I do, we do evictions reasonably often, and you name it, state, you know, multiple states, judicial states and trustees, you know, sales states, like, uh, they're all different. I mean, some of them, you can read stories about how how easy it is to do them, say, in a Dallas or Detroit or something like that. But there, you have to build it in to, to help to assist people and be there where we build value in for make it worth their while too. If they know the system, they'll, I've had people squash our writs the morning of the lockout. And that's when you're like, Cash, you're still paying people because they just know the system. And California's not making it any easier. Yeah, I, I think as far as to, to your point, you know, California, there's a lot of pros. There's also a lot of cons. And so by playing in, in the sandbox, you got to figure out, you know, the appropriate buy. And, you know, you know I think the, what I find funny is like, I, I'm doing Midwest markets and Southwest markets right now too for buy buy and hold. My preference would be buy and hold. We still are getting great returns for our, our dispos. I feel like there's a market value. There's a market floor almost that's like this rent versus buy, depending on your interest rate, that 140 to 165 range where people know I could buy 
not have to move or get, you know, get the tax benefits, put very little down or get a credit back from my seller. Those are those kinds of products where you can do a great deal, buy, fix and hold, buy, fix and sell. That, like, for instance, one deal I'm selling now, if I was doing it with fund money, I, we own it in a, you know, uh, a retirement account or something like I have my own cash in the deals, maybe 40,000 in a house worth 60. If I have 40,000 of fund money in a house worth 60, and that's like the definition of perfect, it, it meets the return. It is a great, you know, it's a well-maintained asset. We've already upgraded the water here, the HVAC. It's going to be a successful asset for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years down the road. And I have no money in that transaction. I'm going to keep that asset. But right now, as the market's shifted, if I'm going to try and keep a $40,000 house that is maybe only worth 60,000 bucks, I'd rather kind of take that profit and put $50,000 down on a $200,000 fourplex or $200,000, like newer built, better MSA, longer term investment. And that's a really big difference. No debt. $40,000 house or $160,000 of debt that I put $40,000 down on. I get better cash flow, I have a better asset, and it's managed by somebody else. So the same deal can be looked at by two different kinds of capital. Yeah, I think pruning the portfolio becomes more and more important all the time. And I, obviously, I saw that a lot with the yeah. you know institutional investors is that, you know, Hey, this market, we don't like this market anymore, or we never got to scale. We needed a thousand doors in this market to make sense. We only got 700. We don't see the, us getting to a thousand unless we really stretch and then it's going to be an underperforming. So we're going to actually exit this market or we're going to start selling these off and exit out of there. And so to your point, like, you know, maybe it's in Charlotte where like uh, another fund could be like, cool, we'll buy it. We'll buy your entire portfolio and exit. Um, it, it, again, it's, it's everybody's buy box, their investment thesis. And, and really when I take that is you need to bake out your business plan first and foremost, that becomes your, your thing. And, and so, and, and obviously you're going to go defend that. You're going to go take it or raise capital based on it. And you're, here's our plan. And this is how we're going to execute our business model X, Y, and Z. And then March forward. And again, it becomes much easier for people to bring deals to you. Like, Hey, Tommy, you say, Hey, I'm buying this. And be like, cool. You want a good deal in Truckee? Here you go. I found a, somebody sent me this good deal in Truckee. I'm not buying there right now because getting permits takes you five years to get permits in Truckee. Yeah. So I think the buy box part, is so personal to each of these, you know, investors. Because I think a big part of this will be people that side hustle their transactions versus full-on operators. I get a reasonably ridiculous volume of people who call me as if they're going to be the best lender in the world and they have a product that I can't, you know, live without. If you're living within that banking model at all, for the most part, I haven't seen anything. I mean, the difference between dealing with Kiavi or Finance of America or other is like I mean, Kiavi, who was lending home before, and they are they are fast. And when you get in a routine with them and you get docked up, you can close stuff really quick. Great operation, you know, great organization to be working with. And but I, when you speak in velocity and volume, most lending models start to face themselves out. Like, okay, well, we can do that deal for you for ten and two. Right, that's great if it's a 12-month deal. But if you're turning money every 90 days, 
and you're paying two points each transaction, that's 18, you know, that's 8% plus the annualized cost of the money at 10, they hit you with a $999 processing transaction fee, a TC fee of 450, an appraisal of 500 to 800. We paid $800 for just a standard single family appraisal with FOA, the Finance of America. Like, I am blown away by how much each piece of this bleeds it down. So when you look at title, escrow, closing, transactional fees, points, and cost of the money, you're paying deep teens, early 20s. You better be operating. You better be delivering a significant above market return in order to be able to justify capital costs like that. If you're buying stuff and you're consistently buying stuff, sub 70% LTV, paying two points won't matter. Like, But do you have a lead source where you can get that kind of volume? Yeah. And some people, most people don't. Well, I would, uh, you and I, we can, we've done this many times, hashed and talked about things and we didn't even dive into, I was actually, as I was kind of coming up, I'd love to hear your thoughts on build to rent. So maybe we'll have to do a part two on just, uh, pontificating on build to rent and where that, that space is kind of going in the meantime, as we're kind of to respect your time and, and, you know, kind of wrap this up. I have a couple of rapid fire questions. Your answers don't have to be rapid fire. But what is the one thing that you have spent money on, let's say in the last year, that has uh, given you back the most time? I would say that right now I'm heavier into a lot of the psychology of investments and time. So my investments is simple, audible membership that when you get into you hear people say things out loud that you almost don't believe. You're like, oh man, that book changed my life. Or this, like, there's a lot to being intentional about how you spend your time, what you're reading, and how it translates into. For me, it's that measurement of time and the you know the value and how I value my own time, which includes in the most random way. If I had to bleed it down to this, I would say the ability to say no. No to transactions that are going to not meet a minimum yield for us. Like, is it a deal? Sure. Or is it maybe even the best deal ever for somebody? But for me, it just doesn't fit, you know, right now. The ability to say no into that. So I, I don't know. I'm getting a lot of, I'm getting a lot of fulfillment out of reading right now, out of just understanding, you know, what, how I value my own time and protecting other people's, you know, money, protecting the people in my office's time so we don't get stuck. I love that. That so that'd be kind of parlays or dovetails nicely into my next question. What book have you gifted most to other people, or maybe just recommended? What's funny is I actually haven't gifted a book in a long since Miracle Morning. Like I gave that to a couple. Of, I had a solar kid stop by the other day who I would hire to sell anything. Kid was great. He actually keeps reasonably in touch with me, and like as he's trying to become adult through college right and there'll be some day that hopefully he'll be available or to match his his just interest level his efforts level it's like this but there's a lot too for the first time hearing how people operate or what they do like and after hearing maybe ed Milet's stuff where it's like i want to go back and kind of re-dissect how he spends his day or the, the hour the time blocks and things like that it's like what mattered most to you was you know, if you are going to bed, you're staying up binging Netflix and knocking beers dead till midnight, and you're not, you know, watching your health. Like, 
what some people have accomplished between 5 and 7 a.m. that far exceeds what others will do before 5 p.m. You know, I think that was an easy one to say, hey, here's what made a big difference in my life, you know. But recently, uh, Mo Gadot's, like, I think it's called The Happiness Equation. And you know what book I loved recently that I just finished was The Comfort Crisis? Because it's a, in a story mode and it wasn't long. And it's about the guy, that, that, you know, people that really go out and do something way outside your comfort zone or, you know, your, your current abilities of, you know, he did a 30 day deep way into Alaska hunt, you know, hike and hunt. And this, there, there's so much to that book, but anyway, I, I enjoyed it because of how well the story was told, where he went with it. Uh, there's a lot to it. Well, the final question is, I know that you have some, some business stuff going on. Uh, maybe you're raising fund two or fund three or however many uh, other funds you got going on. I think you're positioned really well for opportunity in the changing and shifting markets. So my question is, where can people go find out more information about you or, or what you're doing? And then what is that kind of uh, ask or, or if it's either the buy box uh, deals that you're looking for or investors or a combination of those. What is your ask of the audience and where can they find you? Um, our push right now, transactionally, where we're moving majority of our volume will be in regional equity. That's our equity fund. It's going to be called regionalequity.com. They can reach me and contact me through regionalequity.com. It'll be the about us side of that. I would be more than willing to add value wherever your listeners have heard this or lasted all the way through to the end of this hour would be, Hey, I'm working on the following transaction. Do you mind just like kind of giving me your opinion of it? I actually still get people from my go by my um, bigger pockets episode that reach out. They're like, Hey, I caught your thing on how to sell assets to, you know, big funds or something like that to the hedge funds. And I love adding value for whoever needs it, you know, still protecting time. If someone's like, Hey, I'd someday I'd like to get in real estate. Like that's not really, <laughs> like where I'm going to be spending a ton of time on to the event, you know, on, on the advisory side, but you can, I can be found directly through regionalequity.com. My original marketing brand was I love which started because I love houses. So I love started as our, let's do some advertising, see what happens. But I, I would encourage people that are, that have capital to place that are passive into it, that can reach out, that want to speak to me direct. Um, I get you in touch with how we're going to be raising capital for our fund, regional equity. I love it. Thank you, Tommy. I just wanted to share, you know, as a closing statement, some gratitude for you, how you continuously and constantly show up. I love the, I love houses. I love that about you because you bring enthusiasm. You bring this just uh, fun loving spirit to everything you do. That is just who you are. And I truly appreciate that every time I'm around you, I'm more fired up. I feel happier. And so thank you so much for being. I love you, you. brother. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.realestate. 
for those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.